Welcome to Catalogs and Noise. My name is Joe, and today I'm going to be talking about I Never Liked You, which is the third collection of comics by the artist Chester Brown. Again, I am alone. I think I'm going to remain alone. I tried to get my friend Melissa to join me. She couldn't make it, but that's okay. Um, I, I feel, I'm starting to feel a little comfortable uh, speaking alone. I don't know if I was the first uh, couple times. But before I actually get into that, I'd like to uh, throw out a plug from my friends from the Platypus Revenge sec, uh, Sessions. This is a podcast where uh, some buddies of mine, the Reverend John and Charlie, and uh, their musician friends uh, score visual pieces of art and um, you can listen to and play along with them. Uh, their, their podcast is available on iTunes, I know. I, that's how I get it. So the Platypus Revenge Sessions. All right. So I never liked you. Um, I like very much. I, I think uh, very similar to the Playboy and uh, the Little Man, which I'm going to talk about next week. It's a work that I didn't, you know, really uh, take too seriously until I really looked at it closely this time. This is uh, only the second time I've been through it, and a little scrutiny helps. It, it really is rich. The more you you investigate these themes and the different kinds of uh, emotions that Brown is playing with. Uh, the first thing I notice is that unlike the Playboy, which I, I thought interesting because of its single focus on the object of Playboy and how it affected Brown, this is a little more expansive. This is a little closer to a regular memoir, I would think, um, in the mode of, you know, Matt, uh, Joe Matt and um, Julia... Dosit, who I spoke of and compared to the Playboy last week, this one seems to be a little more event-based. Um, it still has a focus, which I'm going to say is centrally uh, a young male's coming of age and his relationship to the females around him. I think that's a core. I think there's a little more than that. But um, beyond that, it is, um, you know, yeah, f- fairly more traditional, I think, in nature. Um, speaking of the idea of, um, the traditional in terms of artistry, I I think that this is expressed more traditionally as well. There is more of, I think, a kind of play with panels where, where the Playboy was only, was a book that was very much about isolation, and having one or two, literally, panels per page. This, this is uh, expensive as well. You get a sense that the, the, um, the art style is being chose based on the story being told. That when it necessitates one panel on a page, it'll give you that. There is a kind of pattern, I think, that is built up. Um, when it needs more and you kind of need that juxtaposition to tell the story, he does it. There, there doesn't seem to be as, I think, um, kind of single-minded and artistic focus as well. And I'm not trying to suggest that one is better than the other. I just think it is a, um, you know, a different kind of uh, artistic mode that is being explored here, which I think is refreshing. The other thing I thought was interesting is, I'm going to talk about the title a little later, I think, but the subtitle of this text is a comic strip narrative, where the subtitle of the Playboy was, I believe, comic memoir. And I was trying to think of what the difference is, you know, why he wants to maybe pull away from the idea of memoir here and just kind of go into narrative. Um, 
I think it's. I think this does tell more of a story, but I don't know why that would make it less of a memoir. You know, there is more a kind of cohesive sense of cause and effect here. Uh, so maybe that's what it's getting at. I don't really know what to do with it otherwise. But um, I thought it was uh, an interesting point of comparison that he seems to want to to draw on. So the other thing uh, I guess I wanted to use to kind of frame this discussion is, you know, what actually the contents of this are. And, and I saw three distinctive ways to kind of engage with this text. Um, one is the relationship with the mother, which seems to take up, I would say, maybe 40% of the text. And that is maybe a little less. And that is, I think, very kind of very, very traditionally narrative in nature. I mean, you get a sense of, you know, where they are, where they're going. And it's laid out, you know, basically point by point and creates an arc. The second storyline or kind of tangle of storylines that Chester Brown seems to be interested in here are the, I guess, let's say more more romantic uh, interest of the young character Brown (laughs) as he moves through his adolescence. And that seems to splinter off into three separate relationships. Um, Two sisters, Connie and Carrie, and another girl named Skye. That is very tangled and knotty and not really as, I think, easily um, trackable as the mother relationship. I think that might be oversimplifying the mother relationship as well because they seem to be in dialogue with each other. There is a sense that the relationships with with the mother is informing his relationships with the girls around him. And I think to some extent, vice versa, that his you know, various heartbreaks or confusions about that, those innocent relationships are informing how he views his mother and how that becomes complicated as he grows up. Uh, I, I don't think I saw any of this the first time around. I, I think that I just, you know, viewed it as, you know, little clips and vignettes from his life. But seeing it now and, and studying how it unfolds, I, I really see a, a kind of complexity. It, it's almost a kind of um, Oedipal message, I think, that is being crafted here. Um, I mean, in the best possible way, you know, I, I think generally speaking, I, I, I see the flaws in Freud, but um, I think a lot of what he says at core resonates with, with how we navigate, you know, the modern world. But I think explicitly he's trying to, to draw these, these lines, you know, these, um, the sense that the past and the rearing that, that, informed who you are is going to affect the you of the present and the you of the future. Um, and the way he does it through the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of these scenes, I think is, uh, is quite masterful actually. Um, the other kind of, I guess, secondary or background point of interest in this text seems to be Brown's relationship with peers. That seems to be far less of interest. That's maybe taking up, you know, 20% of the text overall. And, you know, I guess I'll use the word bullying. Um, I think that is a loaded term and a little bit problematic and maybe overused um, these days. Uh, Not that I'm uh, pro-bully in the least. I just think as a uh, semantic device, it's become an issue. And I'm probably sensitive to it because I hear it bandied about a lot 
in school settings and it's um I don't know the the meaning is has almost been completely diminished by its overuse I think but I, I think it's maybe the best way to talk about the light hazing I mean compared to some some real terrible situations that Brown seems to want to articulate and a lot of that has to do with um with language and power to a certain ex- extent but I was far more interested in the language component and and Brown, the character, trying to um, define himself against the kind of commonplace, um, and that being a point of resentment for the his peers around him. Um, that also, I don't think, can be viewed in isolation, though, because I think there's a larger concern here about how the expectations of that kind of masculine, patriarchal world are informing his sense of self and his sense of the relationships to the women that seem to be at the forefront of the text. So I, I think this is all to say that everything is amazingly integrated, you know, where I, where I really thought that, or I think it might be easily to dismiss this as, as um, disparate or, or not really connecting. I, I think that would be a false assumption. I think everything really is, is, uh, tangled in a, a very interesting, complex way here. Um, all right, I guess I will talk about the title now. Um, the title, I think, is very interesting, and it was something that I never really gave too much thought to until probably this morning. But um, the title's a lie, right? It actually speaks directly to a part in the text where... Um, Carrie, the the younger girl that is infatuated with Chester, says to him, I never liked you. And and we know that's not true. In fact, the first kind of experience we get of Carrie is her stating her love for Chester, you know, written out on his uh, garage door. So why title the book then in this way? Because a couple of reasons. I think number one, it speaks to the complexity of these adolescent figures, right? You know, the, the sense of of not feeling comfortable about giving up your real feelings and who you really are and almost having to state lies when it comes to relationships as a defense mechanism or a kind of uh, preserving your sense of identity when you are very fragile and very vulnerable. I think that's exactly what is happening. But I think in a larger way, um, Brown is is really trying to explore the nature of language in general, the, the language as a kind of tool of manipulation, um, as a protective barrier, you know, whether it is, you know, specifically an adolescent love affair or how we communicate day to day. So I like this this idea that it's um, it's put at the forefront of the text and you have to kind of dig and it's not until about two-thirds or three-quarters through the book that you actually get this line and you can see it, you know, kind of unfold with the complexity. I think uh, when I initially thought of this text, I just thought of it as some some kind of like self-loathing, some kind of ironic statement about, you know, aw shucks, you know, I'm uh, I'm just a, a sad sop, some kind of a Eeyore-ish statement of self. Um, it, it's, it's really not that. It doesn't even come from Brown. Um, although I think you get some of that same thematic experience of what Carrie is saying in the moment through the character Brown in different ways. Um, and, and that speaks back to that third theme I was talking about when it comes to language. 
um, particularly surrounding the character swearing and his ideas about that. But I'll get to that a little later. The other thing I thought was interesting when speaking of the title was is the cover itself. Um, well, the cover I have is the 2011 edition, even though this uh, material, I, th- I believe, covers material from Yummy Fur from 92 to 93. I'm pretty sure this was Yummy Fur. Yeah. Um, this is the 2011 edition with footnotes in the back, although there are far, far fewer footnotes. I don't really know why. Um, that Yeah, I'm not really sure. That, that could be because... Even more so than the Playboy, this material is a little more intimate, and maybe it doesn't require the same kind of footnotes, but I'm not really sure about that. Um, but anyway, the, the cover is of the 2011 edition, anyway, is Chester wrestling with Carrie. And, but it doesn't look like that when you look at the cover in its own right. I mean, it looks like they are dancing, or at least embracing Um, while a record plays in the background in a bedroom. Now, when you get the full context of the book, you know that they are actually wrestling, and it has more to do with kind of, um, I don't know, adolescents working out their kind of physical desires in this kind of like play-touching-wrestling kind of situation. But the, um, the juxtaposition of I Never Liked You over this like very, I think, sweet embrace on the cover, you can see Carrie's... I think I'm saying Carrie, Carrie's face almost um, with her eyes closed, almost like swooning as uh, Chester, you know, reaches around her abdomen um, in, a, in a kind of more a hug than a wrestle. It's, um, it, it's moving and that juxtaposition is interesting. But I also think that that wrestling is interesting thematically speaking because it speaks to that kind of tension that exists in, well, I, I guess I'll say adolescence, but really all romances or all relationships that define humanity, I think, you know, that, that nothing is perfect, that everything is about a kind of compromise or a, a, a give and take, a push and pull that, um, that you have to come to terms with if you mean to maintain that relationship. And um, I think some of these relationships, you know, I think all of these relationships that are described in the text are fleeting. None of them kind of maintain or have a have a, a lasting effect. Well, a lasting effect in terms of the physical world. I think there's certainly quite a lasting effect in terms of the emotional world. I think that's the the general spirit of this text that that these things we think about as fleeting adolescent desires, hopes, um, you know, uh, chance meetings really stay with us in, in a very big way when it comes to our psyches, our spiritual, emotional states, however you want to, to frame it. And I think that's what this book has to say most of all. I mean, because one of the last notes I wrote to myself right before I started talking here was that the, um, the book really doesn't resolve in any kind of, I think, traditionally satisfying way. You know, you, you, you end with, um, with this, this just sense of, of, of nothing being settled. Um, you know, the, the final girl in Chester's life kind of walks away from him and you get the sense that they'll never really talk again. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking about how, you know, why is it that, that I can think of so few texts or works of art that actually end in that light? And I think the answer is because that's how most relationships end, right? I, I mean, 
unless you have a, you know, a parents that that you know live a long time, or family that lives among you that you talk to, or um, you know, a spouse that 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 you're with quite a while. Most relationships in human existence end, you know, um, you know, they, they don't last until old age. And this is really, I think, a book that is chronicling that or, or, you know, not dismissing it, you know, not dismissing all of the people that have come and gone in your life that are there no more, um, just because they're not there, you know, um, making a plea that every one of those relationships has informed who you are. I think that's what this book is about. That's what I'm taking from it anyway. As I talk about it, I like this book more and more, actually. Um, Okay, so moving on. Structurally speaking, the book is really two chunks. It's um, a prologue, or that's what the endnotes call the first, I don't know, it's brief, 8, 10, 12 pages of text. And then you get basically the remainder of the story told in one felt swoop, um, for the remaining, I don't know, 100 pages, uh, 120 pages, or wait, no, 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 more than that, 150 pages. So I want to talk about the introduction alone. I, I, I think it's very interesting, um, and a couple, a couple very cool motifs, I think, pop up that um, are worth talking about. The number one thing is the very first panel that shows up on page one is a picture of the very young Connie, who's one of the girls that becomes a kind of love interest for Chester, just with the statement, Connie lived across the street and she's dressed in her winter clothes and she's looking a little pouty, but there's something just kind of um, innocent and pure and, and about her in uh, against a white background, which I think is supposed to evoke the snow. Um, and I think that's such a, a strong image to start on because you want to get this kind of idealized sense of, I think from Chester's point of view, the character, the young Chester, as a as hopeful, as as believing that he can enter into a relationship with a girl that is a new start or something that he can claim as his own or be healthy for him. And I mention that because if you turn to the next page, it's actually on page three, you get the first vision of his mother, which is horrifying. And it's not the last vision of his mother that's horrifying through this text, but the first one is her shaking him and um, because she's heard him say uh, a swear word, the word shit, and she looks demonic and she is um, shaking him before her head on facing us as the viewer. And in the background are these kind of wavy, nervous lines that are, are showing the shaking motion, but also demonstrating this sense of kind of chaos and I think uh, potential destruction you know, that kind of um, bleeds into a black background. And I thought those, comparing those those two panels, I think says so much about what this book is trying to do. Now, I don't think that the mother is going to come off completely de- demonic, and I don't think that Connie and the other girls are going to come off completely pure. But as a starting point, um, I think it really speaks to the expectations of youth and innocence versus... I think the adult world and the potential corruption that underlies it. So the other, a couple other, I got two other things I think for this introduction. One is um, the word actually, when he says the word um, shit in the sentence, I shit, it was you, which doesn't make any kind of grammatical sense. 
But um, And that's the thing that he is, I guess, saying out loud to Connie when he sees her peering through him at in his door. As she, I guess she's coming to pick him up to go play or go to school or something like this. And it's a thing that gets the mother to, to attack him. But I think we're supposed to read it as a very innocent thing to say. It was, you know, certainly a slip of the tongue, I think, you know, but, at, you know, at the very worst, it might have been, you know, a, a very innocent young boy that was experimenting with a word, you know, not really trying to do anything malicious, not calling anybody, you know, something that would be uh, hurtful. And the reaction to it seems so unjust. And this got me thinking about the last two works of Chester. And this is, I think, the one theme that has maintained since Ed the Happy Clown. And it's the, kind of the persecution of the innocent. And again, this isn't the only time we'll see it. I think we see it several times, you know, particularly through the, the bullying motif in this book. But, um, but it, it's the idea that, like, nobody is safe and that actually the innocents, because of their their purity, their sense of justice are more vulnerable and more susceptible to the pain that, you know, being attacked can cause. And I think, you know, even at his most insensitive, his most crass, Chester, like Ed and like the Chester from the Playboy, seem to be innocent victims of a world. Um, I think that becomes a little more complicated in this text because I think we also see Chester reacting and maybe using the injustices of the world to lash out a little. I don't think we ever got to see that in the Playboy because of the narrow focus of that book, but you do see it here. And it makes this Chester, as opposed to the Playboy, a little less sympathetic, which I think is actually a good thing. Um, I don't really have a preference between this and the Playboy. I think they're both you know, fairly um, quality text. But uh, I, I like to see how they're doing something slightly different. I think that's, um, that's smart. Um, and I guess that essentially ends the introduction. The other thing I wanted to talk about before we got to some of the kind of thematic breakdown was the first real motif after the introduction in this text. And it is a montage, I guess you would say a montage, um, over two pages of Chester returning home from what seems to be school and sitting down at what seems to be a kind of kitchen counter and eating crackers. We see this about half a dozen times throughout the text, and I like this for a couple of reasons. Um, reason number one is it's so kind of mundane and contemplative and and natural. It's it's the thing that I think most people can relate to, coming home and wanting to have a snack. And But there's something very comfortable and quiet and soothing about this time. And I think it's the time you see Chester at his most at ease. And um, there's something very honest about it. I, I don't think that it would be a natural subject for a cartoonist to go to when when inking a memoir, you know, the, the, you, you tend to think of the extraordinary moments, the moments that change or, or, you know, confront the protagonist. Here, Brown, the artist, seems to kind of bask in this, you know, just sense of serenity that the character feels. And, and that actually helps structure the book quite a bit because you see it as he ages. And if you go to the, I don't know, six or eight times you get this motif, you can see the same activity which creates a kind of stability of character, even though the world and the context around him changes so often. And, and you know, um, 
I think it's a really great technique of just building a character and also, you know, setting up almost these kind of, um, I don't know, these kind of steps in life. You know, each time you hit this, it's a reminder that, you know, the character is, is moving on, growing in some way, having a, a new sense of self while maintaining this kind of, um, I don't know, isolation in the best possible sense of it. You know, it, it speaks, I guess, to the idea that um, Chester's problem seems to come from his connection with others. He doesn't really seem to have a problem with himself. In a lot of ways, he's actually very confident in, in I think, the best aspects of himself. His art, for instance, you know, his love of pop culture. You see him listening to music and watching television and things like that and, and being lost in those worlds. It seems that these scenes capture that and, and highlight it um, and also act as a nice juxtaposition against the conflict that is going, is coming to kind of drive the story, I think. All right. So um, I'm going to spend most of the rest of this time, I guess, discussing those relationships that, um, that create this substance of, of the story. I tried to kind of outline a discussion where I talked about them intersecting. It was very difficult to do because I think the book is so complex and it moves so quickly across these instances of his life. So I, I think I'm, I'm going to try and, and isolate it a little bit. First talk about Chester and the mother and then Chester and each of the other girls and et cetera. But the, um, the mother arc is interesting. You get a lot of, I think, explicit Oedipal tension um, in most of the early scenes. You get a scene in the car where um, Chester's mother is driving them, him and his brother, and trying to talk about um, young women and the expectations they should have about them and, and sprinkles in some of her own sexuality and talks about how she... Um, she stuffs her bra and things like this, which clearly makes the boys uncomfortable. Um, again, I don't want to be judgmental here. I'm not saying that's a bad thing to be talking um, about sex to, to you know, children and, and trying to educate them. But, you, but from Chester's perspective, I think both the child and the author of the text, you can feel the just the tension and, and the, the squeamishness of it all. Um, there, there's several other things like that. There's a, a scene where the mother co- wears a wig and asks them how she looks. And, you know, I, I don't know what she was expecting, but they they don't see her as any kind of sexual being or somebody that has an aesthetic look to her, which seems to um, make her uh, upset, I think. Um there are several scenes where the mother is trying to control Chester in different ways. She wants him to wear his Sunday clothes, but he rebels against it because he thinks it's, it's uh, ridiculous. Um, he, uh, she's constantly trying to correct his language. You know, the idea that he says geez one time and she says, you shouldn't say that because it's, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, so, so you get this kind of power dynamic, which culminates in, his, by the way, there are also, there are also some very lovely moments, and some lovely moments that even contextualize those tense moments, like when he says, geez, they're having like this freshly baked bread together, and it seems very homey. There's a beautiful scene where the father, I guess I'll talk about the father in a moment, the father and the mother and Chester are on a cold day sitting in front of the fire, and she's asking him about if, whether he loves her or not. Um, 
So there is this kind of bittersweet quality. One of the very first scenes is a very young Chester drops an egg by accident on the floor and goes to his mother and his mother hugs him. You know, Brown, the artist, I think is very sensitive to to show the complexities of these relationships. This is no way is supposed to be a polemic about, um, about you know, how one should be and is not living up to it. It is not about the, um, the you know, championing or, or degrading any individual. I think it really is a, an almost um, um, removed scientific uh, exploration of, of the events, how he remembers them. But the mother uh, story actually culminates in her becoming sick and dying. There is the implication that she is mentally ill. Um, I, she almost states it directly, but not quite. Uh, in The Little Man, I think there's more on this, if I recall, that I think helped inform my understanding of it here. But I think if you read this alone... Um, there would be just enough to make that conclusion, but nothing really hard factual that you could, um, that you could say, oh, that's definitively the case. But, um, she's essentially institutionalized and, um, the, the reason for her death seems to be a little ambiguous, but eventually she dies when Chester is an adolescent, I don't know, 15, 16, something like this. But the tension around it comes from that idea of saying, I love you. Um, in the conversation where they're in front of the fireplace, he doesn't speak at all. <laughs> um, but she basically begs him and says, why don't you tell us you love me? Do you love us? You know, why don't you say it? And kind of prods him in that direction. And you get during his visitation to her in the hospital where she looks atrocious. She's withered and, and it, it's really difficult to look at. It must have been very difficult, I think, for Brown to, to create those panels. Um, you get him struggling with the idea of saying it out loud. You get the sense that he very, very much wants to, right? If not for his own sake, just to be kind to his mother, but he can't do it and ends up not saying it overall, um, which I believe is, you know, very regretful. I, you can feel it in the text that the Brown writing this, if indeed this is all true, I'm taking for granted it is, um, still regrets that to this day and, and struggles with it. I don't think that's extraordinary. I think everybody has something they regret. They didn't say, they did say that haunts them. This seems to be the thing that uh, I think defines the mother relationship. Everything seems to be in service of the moment where he cannot satisfactorily tell her how she, how he feels about her afterwards. I guess it, it seems uh, months or weeks afterwards she dies and you get this, this two page scene that's kind of heartbreaking of him not knowing how to react. He goes to his room and he says, I tried to cry and I could only muster one tear. And I don't think that means that he didn't have feelings for her. I don't think it means that he wasn't sad, but there is this expectation I think he has, an external expectation, a physical expectation that he felt that I think he thought he had to meet in order to, to be healthy emotionally. I don't think that's the case, but I think that's, that's typical as well. This kind of body tension we have. Um, so 
about three quarters, two thirds through, the mother kind of leaves the picture. And like I was saying before, there's, there's not a kind of satisfying end there. You know, the satisfying end would be him saying it in the last moment and, you know, shedding a tear. But that's not how reality works. There is a kind of, um, I don't know, uh, ultra realism to this text that is unnerving and beautiful all at once, I think. Um, just to, I don't want to leave the father alone here, but the father is, is uh, present in this text several times. Um, I don't think he says anything. Um, he, Chester, the character, or it might be, it's a narrative voice, uh, speaks for the father sometimes. But when he is shown, he is shown as background. He is shown as silent. He is shown as somebody that I think has been, I don't know what word, um, neutered in a sense by the mother's presence. And I don't think that is to blame her to say that she is some kind of um, emasculating shrew or something. I don't think that's what the text is saying. But I think that might be how we're supposed to see it through the boy's eyes at the time. And I think that's how we're supposed to um, uh, maybe see the possible trajectory of, of young Chester himself. Uh, that's how I saw it anyway. This, this, this kind of um, negotiation of him listening directly to what the mother says and to him being his own man, you know, that seems to be the tension. Um, okay. So moving on, uh, you have the relationship with the three girls. Um, and the first one is one I've already mentioned between him and Carrie, which is the youngest girl. And this one I think is where we see Chester, let's say, um, maybe take out some of the frustrations he has from the mother. I think there's a, a kind of, implied transference here where as the mother kind of henpecks him or um, challenges him, he starts to play with Carrie's emotions. I don't think it's to say that um, she doesn't have any, uh, that Chester doesn't have any legitimate feelings for her. I think he absolutely does. But she seems like an easy target for his ridicule. And this is what I was talking about in some way that he's not you know, as saintly or as innocent as demonstrated in the Playboy, or if we take his persona to be connected to Ed the Happy Clown character in that text. But you get the sense that, like, he uses her, that um, he knows, it, it's stated very early on that he knows that Carrie likes her. Um, his brother says to him, uh, do you know who wrote I Love You on the garage door? It was Carrie. And he says, yes, I know, even though he denied it to them earlier. So you get the sense of knowing, of um, being far more aware than he wants to let on to those around him, which I think is important because everything that comes after and subsequent to that scene needs to be seen to some degree as calculated. Um, Carrie is not, I think, completely innocent victim either. She seems to be manipulative in her own right. When Chester becomes interested in another character, Skye, she seems to be manipulating or having a kind of say in that to almost trying to be a puppet master of that relationship. I think some of that will come from, you know, feeling isolated and feeling rejected and wanting to have some control in his life. But I think it also comes with this kind of, you know, I don't know, slightly mischievous sense as well. Although I think 
of the character in the text, we are supposed to see Carrie as maybe um, doe-eyed innocent. She is drawn with these very large eyes that are uh, kind of endearing. Um, ultimately, that relationship ends in, in, I think, a kind of slight you know, disruption. Uh, I'm trying to avoid the word trauma. That's far too dramatic, but, um, but in, in a kind of, a kind of loss. Um, so you get the motif, as I talked about before of the wrestling, uh, Carrie actually is the second girl to wrestle Chester, but their wrestling keeps on. The first one is guy. He wrestles her, I think by Carrie's prompting, if I remember correctly, but then she begins to wrestle him often, uh, it seems. And I think, as I said before, that is a way to kind of just work out the kind of physical frustrations of young adolescence. And that's what's going on there. But as it's more and more clear that she has been rejected for Sky, she becomes aggressive and almost prompts him to attack her. It's in, in two strange sequences. One is where she steals a pen from him and makes him chase her and, and wrestle it out of her hands and almost becomes a kind of kind of victim. I, I think we're supposed to get that she is doing it just for the attention of it all. Um, but it, it's, I think it goes to show the, this kind of innocent play becoming corrupted or corruptible due to the context, due to their aging, due to the, the harsh feelings that underlie and you and you get one other scene later on where, um, or maybe that was the last one. I know there's two of these wrestling scenes, but um, and and the last one ends with with violence, with Chester dragging her around, and it almost creates this you know uh, this villainous sense of him, um, even though she prompts it. But you know because he is older and you know stronger, you you get this worrisome sense. It, it's it's very complicated in terms of the emotions involved. I think, but. Um, I think that is the relationship I, that speaks to how we kind of can easily hurt each other in our youth, how um, it's easy to be callous when you are so kind of young and self-involved. And I think that comes through in different ways in, in both accounts. I, I can't not say this, but there is this um, one scene where they are um, laying together on a bed listening to a record and uh uh, it's uh, Ellen John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which is one of my all-time favorite albums. And uh, Chester is singing along to it. And she says, you sing so well as uh, Benny and the Jets plays. Uh, I just adore that scene, uh, probably because I adore early Ellen John. But um, there's uh, a lot of like very good uh, music references. Um, I feel like uh, Brown and I could uh, speak about music for quite a while, but uh, they talk about Led Zeppelin albums. I mean, what are we talking 73 through 75? I mean, it completely makes sense. Bowie's mentioned. And then later on, even uh, Kiss gets a, a shout out. Kiss, I'm not a fan of, but um, but I, I'll get to that in a little bit. I think there's something interesting there too. Um, okay. I don't know. I just like all the, I think, verisimilitude of, of how the music is used and and I think just the idea of two, uh, I don't know, what, 15, 14-year-olds sitting on a bed listening to a record and, and talking is, is something that is so lost. I don't like to be one of these guys that is, uh, talks about uh, you know, the, 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 the golden past and how it was so much better in those days. But in terms of listening to a record on a bed, being 14, I think there is something lost. 
All right. So I want to move from Carrie to Connie, who is the older sister. There is a kind of sibling rivalry that I think is being implied across them. Um, But Chester has his own relationship with Connie that is interesting. He claims to not really like her very much. And I think that comes through. And she seems to be, I think, interested in him um, and curious about him, but not really um, committed. And their relationship is interesting. I, I like the idea that Connie is that first panel, not because of all the things I talked about before, but because I think we're supposed to think of Connie as the ideal partner for Brown, the one that he should desire. She seems to be the one that is most, I think, traditionally attractive, uh, you know, um, you know, just aesthetically speaking. Um, and she is his age, and they seem to have this kind of um, this kind of sense of nature and beauty in common. This comes through when there, there's this hide-and-seek kind of sequence that plays out. And the two of them are, because they're older, they get to go off and hide, and the rest of the kids have to find them, and they can never find them because they're hiding in the tall grass. And there's this beautiful sequence where they lay down on their backs and they they just talk and enjoy the sky together. And it's... um. It's very innocent and idealized, but we're, but beyond that, they don't really connect at all. And I, I think there's a couple interesting things in that. Number one is I think it speaks to um, the kind of, I don't know, expectations that the reader has for who should be together and all that being um, subverted. And I think which, which ultimately speaks to Brown's tastes, you know, um, the idea that he is not maybe into the, um, I don't know, the partner that you would think would be traditionally attractive, the one that you would think um, makes the best kind of story or couple, that he's far more um, sensitive and introspective than than to be almost cliche in that regard. So I think that's the the function of Connie for the most part. There's another scene or series of scenes that take place in movie theaters. Um, There's a scene before the scene with Connie, which is interesting. Uh, Chester and his friends go to see a movie. I think in the, in the footnotes, um, Brown talks about how it was a a clash trip or something like this. And um, they, the friends leave him as he holds seats and a group of girls that seem to be older girls or girls, his age, kind of harass him, it seems, and, you know, mock him and say that, like, you know, oh, he's for me, you know, um, and and try and embarrass him. And I only bring that up now because there's a scene where Chester, where Connie actually asked Chester to go to a, a movie later, and he's very uncomfortable. He's uncomfortable when he gets there and doesn't sit with her. Um, partially because he sees some of the the boys that harass him and doesn't want their scrutiny. But I think it also is because of this first movie theater experience and his kind of weariness of of what girls can do to, I think, hurt his feelings, to emasculate him, that gets, I think, unfortunately wrapped up with Connie, who I think has very innocent and noble intentions and really just wants to connect with him. But again, what does this speak to? I think ultimately Connie is um, 
represents the, the um, I don't know, the possibilities, you know, the possibility of, of a real connection that context won't allow, you know, that your own hangups won't allow you to give yourself over to because, um, I don't know, because of circumstance, you know, it has really nothing to do with you or her or um, it, it's really just about the miscommunications that I think um, underlie much of uh, what we go through. That, that We really don't see Connie much in any kind of substantial way after that. And I think we're to assume that that relationship fades as well. Um, and what we're left with at the end is Chester's relationship with Skye. Certainly it starts... Uh, way earlier in the text, but we actually don't meet Sky until about a third into the book. She comes last. She seems to be the representation of Chester's real, I think, lust. You know, he he is uh, viscerally attracted to her, I think, in a way that he is, and inspired by her, in a way that he is not in the sisters. Um, this comes through in a couple different ways. Uh, number one, so there, there's a, a motif that kind of um, underlies this relationship, and it's basically they become friends as they sit at lunch together. So you get a series, I don't know, maybe four or five different scenes of them sitting at lunch having these discussions, and you can just look at those scenes and see a relationship building, and it, be, it starts out as just kind of friendly banter, and what you actually get is this kind of tormented inner monologue of Chester wanting to reveal his feelings to her um, as his heart thumps and you get the thump, 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 you know, next to his figure in the, uh, in the panel, um, which I think is, is so brilliant. I remember, you know, uh, speaking to girls in, I don't know, seventh, eighth grade and, and just like being heart sick and, and you know, heart racing a mile a minute. Uh, I think uh, Brown captures that, you know, very, very beautifully. Uh, in some of these panels, but you get um, you get this uh, this sense of of real desire. I mean, in a way that he's unwilling to communicate to the sisters or to his mother. He does communicate to her, and eventually, um, you know, maybe in the third or fourth lunch panel, says "I love you," and we get the fallout of that. And eventually, she comes back and says it, and you get this moment of jealousy at the lunch table where another boy comes up and starts talking to her and you get this inner monologue from Chester and he's like, when did they begin talking? And, and he feels left out and slighted. Um, you get this other panel, or it's actually a, a juxtaposition of two panels. One is a picture of what looks like a centerfold from the Playboy. I actually think it is one of the panels that is depict, or one of the pages of Playboy that is depicted in the Playboy that uh, you turn the page and you see Chester's vision of the naked sky in the same pose, you know, essentially he's connecting his experience and lust for the Playboy model to her. But, but that relationship doesn't seem to kind of play out either, right? Sky is, seems to be ideal for him in every way. She likes him back. Um, she is... Um, I think physically, you know, what he is looking for, but he can't do it. Some of this, I think, has to do with the mother. It's at the point where he is grappling with Skye and his admission of his feelings towards her that the mother is dying. And even though he'll never say that to Skye, he seems to talk about that with Connie, but not with Skye. 
And um, even though he won't say it to her, it's informing his decision-making. It's informing his mind. You know, it's something that I think is subconscious that he is not even aware of, but I think the reader is meant to be aware of. Um, and again, that's just, you know, kind of uh, the nature of life, you know, the circumstances of the context that we can't control. And their relationship ends the book uh, in total, where she essentially approaches him as he's mowing the lawn and all sweaty. I think by this time, he's probably 17 or 18 years old and wants him to come out with her and, I don't know, go shopping or go to see a show or something. I can't remember the exact instance, but, um, and he makes up an excuse. He says, um, no, I have this new kiss record I want to listen to. And, and that's more important. I'm so anxious, essentially blowing her off, snubbing her completely. Um, and you know, it's a ridiculous excuse. You know, it's clearly, you know, somebody that doesn't want to deal with her anymore. The text doesn't really editorialize much in terms of giving a a motivation, giving a sense of why that is. And I think you get the sense that Chester doesn't know himself. He's really at a loss for why he's doing that, but it just doesn't seem to be right, this relationship. And it's a little heartbreaking. You know, the last panel is essentially her walking away alone, um, uh, you know, from him, from this very, like, almost, like, like wide-shot bird's-eye view of, uh, I know I put everything in cinematic terms, um, as he continues to mow the lawn. And we've come a long way since the possibility of the cute little girl, you know, at, I don't know, seven, eight years old, that the book begins with with Connie, and this, you know, these two far more mature adolescents that can't communicate, even though... Everything seems, you know, in in perfect order for them to communicate. And again, I don't, you know, none of these relationships are satisfying in a traditional sense. None of them um, have have a a complete arc. They just kind of fizzle out. You get the distinct impression that Chester is never going to see Sky again. And there's a a tragedy in that. Um, But it's not the, uh, the end of the world, you know, um, he'll have those memories of her and he'll also have those regrets of, for her, uh, of her or through her. But, um, it's, uh, that, that's what life is, I think. Yeah. All right. The other theme that I wanted to just, uh, play with a little bit are the, the peers, um, you know, in these, there's actually two groups of boys that uh, challenge Chester. One's older, and that seems to be more kind of traditional physical bullying. I think that's only one sequence, though. But there is a group of boys that I think just kind of harass him in general. Um, you know, they're, they're like, uh, I don't know, five or six of them, and they kind of uh, move in a pack. And anytime they can, they, they tease him about the idea that he won't swear, you know, they could say, fuck Chester, say shit, Chester. And they ask him about it. And Chester very dryly responds back, you know, that he won't do it. So I think what they're trying to do, and I, I think I've mentioned this before, is trying to set up a kind of context of what they consider to be a male representation that they want Chester to fit into, or I guess are fascinated that he refuses to fit into, um, which I think demonstrates him as a, a strong, you know, independent-minded person. And it's just the kind of thing that I think a, a bully resents, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the nerd, the quiet uh, kid that, that 
that won't conform to what he believes to be, you know, cool or mainstream. I think that's what we're getting here. Again, I don't think it's anything that is, you know, dire. Um, I've seen far worse bullying than than this, but I think it does uh, have a, have a subtle a subtle um, push for him to behave in some of the ways he does. You know, as much as the mother and those Oedipal issues inform the relationships with the girls, I think so does this kind of driving masculine force around him. Chester is not, is somebody that wants to be his own man, you know, is somebody that wants to be an artist. With something I forgot to mention is the, the uh, when we talked about Sky there was the art representation Chester um, draws a picture for Sky of a, a skeleton reaching up to uh, grasp a, a bird that's flying up into the cosmos, and and it's a, a very harrowing shot, and it's the, it looks very different from all the rest of the illustrations in this text. It actually reminded me quite a bit of um, of how Brown the artist treats the Playboy magazine as opposed to the comic strip, you know, reality in the Playboy. Um, and he talks about the symbolism of it all. Sky can't see the symbolism and asks what it's about to Chester, and he denies that it's about anything. Carrie is the one that actually understands him and knows exactly what it's all about and can read him uh, loud and clear, although he denies it. Um, and that is all just him kind of fighting with the idea that he could be understood. You know, he believes himself to be, you know, this deep artist that has layered things to say, but you know, Carrie can see right through him. She's smarter than him and it irritates him. Well, I, I think in a similar way, um, the boys that want him to swear um, are, are, I don't know, getting at something in him that he is, he's uncomfortable with. You know, there, there's a scene where they almost trick him. You know, he's repeating back to one of the kids what he's saying and the kid says the word shit and he says it by accident and has this like horrified oops face. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I think what it's all about is the assertion of selfhood, you know, that he's struggling with. And that has a lot to do with his choices when it comes to these girls that, you know, he doesn't want to conform to what is typically expected of him in Connie. He doesn't want to be read, you know, perfectly as Carrie seems to do. And um, Sky's a little more difficult, but he doesn't... Um, uh, he d- he doesn't want to, I think, give over to some of the more visceral instincts in himself. He is, I think, maintained through the whole time, even at his worst, a kind of uh, sensitivity that I think is commendable. Um, he doesn't want to give himself over to this kind of masculinized rhetoric and, and expectation. He wants to be better than that, uh, a moral force underneath it all. And that's very difficult, particularly when you're an adolescent boy, I think. Um, well, I can't speak to being an adolescent girl, but being an adolescent boy, I, I think I felt that, you know, this, um, this strive to be something that in my heart I didn't necessarily want to be. Overall, this is, um, this is incredibly, I think, complex. You know, when you get all of these different relationships and themes kind of commingled, and in a given page you know, you can get one of these on the next page, another, and you have to try to draw the connections. I don't think I'm even doing justice, like, you know, how these, these different stories and motifs juxtapose each other to tell the individual stories and, and, you know, create messages 
that the text ultimately does. What I got overall was just the sense of confusion and frustration of youth. I think this came through stronger in this text than it did in the Playboy even. And the the sense that, you know, relationships are what they are, you know, that um, I think in a, in a metatextual way, our expectations of what a story should do are part of the problem, uh, a falsehood, you know, uh, getting the, the tidy closure, getting the, um, you know, either the tragedy or the comedy is not really what life um, hands to us. Uh, Brown wants to kind of fly past those things give us, a, I think, a realer sense of what it means to be young, what it means to be confused, and um, challenge his, his audience. I think it's very well done. Uh, I come to like it quite a bit. So next time we talk, it is going to be about um, The Little Man, which is the last of these, I think, um, early stage Chester Brown, Yummy Fur um, works. Um, I honestly don't remember much about it. I remember isolated bits of it, but I don't even remember if it tells a cohesive story. So it's going to be a nice surprise to get back into that and check that out. Hopefully um, I discover uh, its beauty as um, clearly as I did in the Playboy and I Never Liked You, which uh, again, I think are are excellent, have grown in my estimation even, uh, even as I uh, speak about them. So um, I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I'll see you next week. Now I keep my address.